Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I'm glad you're with us. You know, earlier this week, I was asked to comment on the financial implications of the Hamas terrorist attack and the response. But I declined the invitation because I have no interest at this time taking any attention away from the depravity of the events, the tragedy. I, I guess it's unfathomable sorrow, and I think that's the right word. So you'll have to forgive me because I find that my words aren't adequate, can't do justice to the hate that targets innocent people and their crime. They were Jewish. And judging by the scenes of jubilation in Western urban centers, including Canada, that hate's been exported throughout the world. So I will visit the subject in both, uh, I guess, the Goofy Award and the Quote of the Week. But first, in a few minutes, I'm going to chat with Dr. Judith Curry, a climate scientist, author of 180 peer-reviewed articles, but that's not all. And I'm going to give you a list here. She's also the former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, Georgia Institute of Technology, a former member of the National Research Council's Climate Research Committee. She served on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Climate Working Group for five years. She's been a member of the National Academy's Climate Research Group. I think that was from 2003, 2006. And her career's also included being awarded a Presidential Young Investigators Award from the National Science Foundation and the Henry G. Houghton Research Award. So she's got awards. What, something like 180 published peer-reviewed articles, several books. She's done expert testimony in front of Congress, provided expertise with major government climate-related organizations, as well as being the chair of Georgia Tech's School of Earth and Atmospheric Scientists. But what is she best known for? Being called a climate denier. Although she doesn't question that man has an impact on climate. No, she's called a denier because she dared question the science-slash-political climate establishment specifically about the politicization of the inter intergovernmental panel on climate change, which she said has been overly influenced by politics and whose forecasts are presented to the public with a level of certainty that is misleading and absolutely unwarranted. And for questioning the political scientific establishment's climate narrative and not adhering 100% to their political uh, climate narrative, she was immediately branded a climate denier because they demand 100% subservience or nothing. She was one of the first on the receiving end of the consequences of asking questions in this no questions allowed environment, which is antithetical to the foundation of science. But a dream scenario, of course, for politicians, who as early as 1992 had signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change committed 154 nations to combat, in their words and quotes, dangerous human interference with the climate system. Problem was, there was no science backing that claim. It was more about the dream of a world governing body and was the precursor to the Kyoto Award, the numerous convention of the parties, you know them as COP. And by the way, it's the same motivation that underpins the World Economic Forum. The political interference and opportunism is blatant, yet rarely acknowledged, despite the facts that, like the final draft of the IPC reports, are not, let me repeat, are not written by the scientists, but instead are written by politically appointed bureaucrats, which, by the way, is another point of criticism by Dr. Curry, as is the alarmism spread by the IPCC, most politicians, a willing media who appreciates that scaremongering sells. And it fuels the call for a fundamental shift in society 
from how we're governed, i.e. less democracy, more government interference and restrictions, to a complete overhaul of the energy system. Yet they still have no realistic, practical plan and haven't outlined the costs associated with the energy transition. And we've already experienced the climate policy-driven increase in the cost of oil, diesel, natural gas, along with the increased cost of fertilizer, all of which have the biggest impact on the world's most vulnerable citizens, even in our own country, our own communities. The biggest certainty in the climate debate is that there's big money in climate change, millions in research grants, hundreds of billions in green subsidies, hundreds of billions more in investments for firms talking about ESG. You know what? On the good side, maybe things are about to change. I think it's 20 years after Judith Curry had the courage to question the alarmist climate agenda, she finally has company. I doubt you heard this. Bill Gates recently. There's a lot of climate exaggeration. The climate is not the end of the planet, so the planet is going to be fine. He was echoing the statement made in August by Jim Shea, the head of the IPCC, who implored people to drop the alarmism, saying in quotes, the world won't end if it warms by more than 1.5 degrees. Please note, though, as I said, that neither of those statements was featured prominently in the news. But when you get like the head of the the UN or someone like that, the IPCC, saying something like we're all going to fry to death, well, that gets news, but not those statements. You know, recently, both the UK's Rishi Sunak and France's uh, President Emmanuel Macron have both criticized the alarmist agenda. And we have the most recent Nobel Prize winner in physics, John F. Clauser, outright rejecting it. We're also seeing an increasing number of studies that conclude that 2050 net zero agenda is impossible to achieve, given the huge number of practical constraints from, well, we talk about it here, the massive lack of necessary materials and minerals for renewables, to the inadequacy of the electrical grid, and finally, the astronomical costs associated with the energy transition. Well, that's finally at least getting a little bit of press. So I say sit back, enjoy Dr. Judith Curry, whose credentials and accomplishments make it clear she knows far more about climate change than any teenager or the people who glue themselves to the floor or roads and throw paint on masterpieces. She's far more knowledgeable than any climate cheerleader in the media or environmentalist like David Suzuki or Al Gore or celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio or any climate grandstanding politician. You can fill the names in for yourself. So stay with me. Dr. Judith Curry is next. I've been looking forward to this interview for, well, a long, long time. Judith Curry, Dr. Judith Curry's climate scientist. And I love to list this off as I did at the outset of the show. I mean, we're talking the author of, you know, whatever, 180 peer-reviewed article, a former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, Georgia uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. The list is just too long, and I did it right at the top of the show, so I'm not going to go into it here, but that's why I've been looking forward to it. Uh, Dr. Curry, thanks so much for finding time for us. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Mike. I look forward to this. Well, have you ever had a journey? You know, I, I want to go back to and just maybe help people understand, in your case, you went to, and this is my word, not yours, a darling of sort of the scientific community. I mean, you were recognized very early with prizes and awards and stuff like that, successful career. And then it seems to me 
you made the fatal mistake. You questioned the orthodoxy when it comes to climate change. Well, in a way, it's worse than that. Um, <clears throat> I question things that you know are well within the range of uncertainty of the UN climate assessment reports. My cardinal sin was to criticize the behavior of important people in the IPCC. Okay, and this came to a head. Um, you may recall Climate Gate. These were the oh, sure. unauthorized <laughs> emails. <coughs> yeah, let's was, remind people of what that is. I think it was 2008, 2009, you know, when the. November of 2009, a hacker got into the um, computers at University of East Anglia and revealed the emails of a whole bunch of IPCC authors. And it revealed all sorts of skulldudgery, including trying to evade Freedom of Information Act requests, get journal editors fired, um, bypass the policies of the IPCC, um, you know, practices in terms of what could be referenced and, and all of these kind of things. It was just a bunch of skullduggery, you know, and I said, look, we need to do better. I mean, it was really embarrassing for the whole climate community, yes. you know, caught with their pants down, so to speak. Um, I said, we need to do better. We need to make all of our data publicly available. We need to be transparent about our methods. We need to be more honest about uncertainty and pay more attention to trying to characterize it. And we need to avoid being overconfident in our conclusions. And finally, we need to be respectful of the people who are critical of our work and if we think they're wrong, we should challenge them with good arguments. We shouldn't insult them or try to get them canceled. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you would think that, you know, these are motherhood and apple pie kind of things. But, oh, my gosh. Um, my statements were met with complete silence. <laughs> the community. Nobody in authority was speaking out other than the people who were caught with their pants down and they were trying to defend themselves. Oh, but the science is fine. Um, and this absolute silence until maybe about five months later when the uh, president of the National Academy of Science came out and said essentially what I did, you know, we need to do better. But there's complete silence from the IPCC. Um, and they said, well, what do we do about Judith Curry? You know, that's a real problem. And they were trying to complaining about all the media attention I was getting, this, that, and the other. And things really came to a head. And this is almost a year later that this would be 2011, maybe. Mm -hmm. No, somewhere in there. Um, I wrote a blog post on hiding the decline criticizing an aspect of the hockey stick, um, temp, you know, paleoclimate temperature graph, where they had spliced two time series together in a way that I thought was very misleading. And so I said, you know, this is misleading. We shouldn't do this. What were they thinking kind of thing? Okay, and that was it, because this involves Michael Mann. And then Michael Mann said, I know what to do with the Judith Curry problem. Let's just call her a denier. You know, let's can't, you know, she, she's put her in the, you know, throw her out of the tribe, put her in the group with all the cranks, and then we can completely dismiss her. And, you know, 
so that was pretty much the end. And everybody, oh, great, great idea. So everybody joined the fray and calling me, well, led by Michael Mann, you know, a climate disinformer, a denier, you know, every sort of bad name that you can think of. It's interesting to note, uh, contrary to your approach, when you first encountered, uh, let's call them skeptics, I don't like that, just people who have questions and challenge, et cetera, but you, you uh, engaged with them immediately. Absolutely. And look at their response is let's have a ad hominem attacks so we don't have to engage. And that to me has been characteristic of the entire climate issue in that efforts made by name calling, by canceling, uh, by okay. discrediting, uh, you know, a conversation. And that's anti-science to me. Absolutely. You know, back in 2006, I began to be fascinated by the climate blogosphere. I mean, realclimate.org, Michael Mann was one of the founders, and they had a whole blog roll of all these other blogs, and I was following that, and I said, oh, wow, this is a wonderful way to communicate. Okay, so in August of 2006, I published a paper, Hurricanes and Global Warming, that got a lot of media attention, Mm -hmm. and... So then I I said, okay, so I was going around to all the blogs that were talking about my paper, okay, and I landed on climate audit, you know, and people were asking for my data and talking about the statistical analysis. I go, whoa, this is pretty interesting. Why have I never heard of this blog before? It's not on the real climate blog roll. Well, I soon realized that, the proprietor of the blog was Steve McIntyre, who was the yeah. arch enemy of Michael Mann. Okay, and this was where all the criticism, uh, you know, the headquarters for criticizing the hockey stick. And so, you know, I, I was just, I interacted with them for quite a bit and quite regularly, you know, in the comments, debating with them. I wrote a few guest posts and I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and, and the people on the other side, you know, were cheering me on. Oh, Judith Curry is giving them hell over a climate audit, you know, bravo. But I came to understand them and their perspectives and appreciate there are a lot of people on that, you know, participating in that who have very good mathematical and statistical skills and, you know, <laughs> far better than mine and far better than Michael Mann's. And so, you know, I was paying good attention to them. So when ClimateGate struck, you know, with these things posted on Climate Audit, I was on the phone with Steve McIntyre. We're talking, what do we do? How do we try to calm this down? And that's what motivated me writing these essays, criticizing the IPCC and the behavior of those scientists. So, I mean, that's the near-term history, but... um, you know, they set out to, you know, to sabotage me. Um, and in many ways, they were successful. Um, <laughs> if you, back in the day, say around 2013, if you would Google Judith Curry, you would see, you know, the things that show up. Judith Curry, climate denier, climate heretic, Judith Curry, turns on her colleagues, you know, you'd see, you know, a mm-hmm. whole page of this stuff. And so I was looking for other positions. I wanted to get out of Georgia Tech. They had made things very uncomfortable for me. So headhunters thought I was a great candidate. I went to interview for some big jobs. And at the end of the day, 
you know, they said, you're a great candidate in many ways, but you're never going to get hired because if you Google Judith Curry and all the stuff yeah. shows up, you know, what university administrator is going to hire you? So I saw the writing on the wall and I said, okay, you know, I could have stayed around and sucked up my big salary at Georgia Tech, but that's not who I am. So I resigned and I, I'm now full-time in the private sector, my own company, Climate Forecast Applications Network. Um, a couple of things, just very quickly. I mean, hasn't the hockey stick been completely discredited now? I mean, not just now, but I mean, for quite a while. Okay, like, well, yeah. okay. the methodology behind it has been largely discredited. There have been teams of paleoclimate scientists getting together to do new reconstructions. And there was this group who put together a more realistic reconstruction. And then this group split into two, <laughs> okay? One that was, you know, working to refine the more realistic reconstructions and the other half that went back to the old hockey stick style of analysis. Mm -hmm. So the, the point of it is, is that there's a huge amount of uncertainty in terms of what the global temperature was back then. We have historical records, we have regional um, paleoclimate proxies, but in terms of trying to make a statement about what the global temperatures were back then, colossal amount of uncertainty. So, I mean, they were so overconfident of what they were doing back in 1998, uh, just unbelievable. But again, that's such a key point, though, because the public has been fed uh, a level of certainty that I don't think is merited by uh, our science, and including the modeling. Oh, my gosh, we're, we're acting like modeling is like taking a temperature of somebody in the room with okay. you. All right. So, so we, we can blame this on the politicians. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the policy cart has been way out in front of the scientific horse from the very beginning of all this. I mean, back in 1992, we had an international climate treaty, the UN Framework Convention on Climate mm -hmm. Change, to prevent dangerous anthropogenic um, warming by eliminating fossil fuel emissions. This was before we had any idea what was going on with the climate, not to mention the socioeconomic consequence of attempting this, you know, on short time horizons. So, you know, the UN put out, you know, frame this as a global problem. We need a global solution. And in order to push this forward, we need a global consensus of scientists. So the IPCC was, you know, mandated to find a consensus about dangerous human-caused climate change. They basically manufactured a consensus on all this, you know, under the direction, request, insistence of their bosses, <laughs> you know, the UN. So we ended up with this very narrow framing of the problem completely ignored the role of natural climate variability, assumed that all warming um, was bad, um, completely ignoring the impacts, um, and focusing only on one policy response. So we had this very, very narrow framing of this colossally complex, uncertain, and ambiguous problem, which has brought us to the silliness in this whole issue that we see today. I, I would think, though, I want to just reemphasize your point that does, seems to get overlooked. When they presented the problem, they didn't have the scientific backing, you know, to elaborate. But they only considered one policy solution. To me, that's 
you know, so damning. But a lot of people don't understand that it wasn't an either or. We could have had a lot of policy choices, at least to debate, but we weren't debating at that point. We still aren't debating, you know, and I just think that's you can drive a truck through uh, that. But I want to come back to the IPCC because I don't think people appreciate. And I'm saying uh, I'm sitting on the outside, but I've read the reports. And the first thing that jumped out is which politician wrote it. Now, that may be a glib way of saying it, but I think people are shocked when they find out that final let's take action report uh, isn't written by scientists. It's written by bureaucrats, you know, who are aligned with the politicians. It's not a scientific document. Okay. Um, In the working group one report on the physical basis of climate change, if you go into the bowels of the report, there is some good science. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not enough, but there is some good science. Um, The summary for policymakers, again, is essentially written by the policymakers, um, and they cherry-pick things. And if you only look since 1970, you know, this has gotten worse, but if they forget to tell you that if you look back to 1930, things were worse then, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. cherry-picking. And... The IPC, even the summary for policymakers is relatively tame. I mean, it's cherry picked, it's slanted, it's spun. But then when you hear the UN officials to talk, talk about it, you know, code red, we're on the highway to hell, existential threat, you know, about these things that, you know, if you really dig into it, you know, it's hard. Is, is this really all that dangerous? Um, you know, that they're spinning. Uh, in their statements, and then of course this gets amplified by the media, and then what what the um, public consumes is just a bunch of political spin. And and I mean obviously it's successful, but when I see school children out there, you know, uh, protesting climate change, and I don't think they could go one minute with me. But that's how I feel about most politicians. I could give me one minute, I'll undress them. But they know so little about it. And there's so many big issues that you can drive a truck through. And I think their lack of sophistication, just, you know, I talk about this all the time because it brings it down to a level. You didn't need any sophistication to know you need backup for renewable energy. That takes nothing but (laughs) the sun doesn't shine every day. That's all it would have taken. But I think that's representative of their thought process. Well, no, all this energy stuff, I mean, it's being voted in by politicians. Um, Say New York now has a mandate a very aggressive mandate to go to 100% renewable energy on a very short time scale. Okay, uh, New York, I mean, they have some decent hydropower, you know, which helps, but they're aggressively getting rid of their, not just their coal, not just their gas, but also their nuclear. Okay. I guess I should say, do they not know where Germany is? You know, didn't, didn't <laughs> okay, Germany but, feature that okay. movie first? I know. Okay. So, I sit on a committee of the New York System Reliability Corporation, something like that, Mm -hmm. to um, extreme weather events. So we've been putting together some stress test case studies, you know, based on historical data and and this, that, and the other about, you know, like, oh, (laughs) you know, 17 days when the wind doesn't blow and it's the middle of winter, where's your solar? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. The temperatures are really, really cold. Now what are you doing? I'm praying that New Jersey has a lot of nuclear power that they can transmit into New York. Um, you, know, you know, like it, it just makes no sense. But, but I'm on a committee with engineers, you know, and they, they sort of get it. But the point is the politicians aren't asking the engineers 
<laughs> you know, what they should be doing. They're just making this political decisions and these mandates and the engineers have to figure out how to, you know, <laughs> provide electricity on a re reliable basis and keep the, you know, frequency. Wind and solar are terrible for, free, you know, intermittency is one thing, but they really screw up the frequency control because yes. uh, they're asynchronous and, and they need to add all sorts of asynchronous converters and you need to add all the stuff to it. And it gets really, really expensive to do. And nobody has demonstrated that you can do 100%, you know, wind and solar based electricity system. You know, places like Iceland and Costa Rica, they have lots of hydropower and geothermal. Okay, that's how they can be 100% renewable. But in the absence of those kind of resources, you know, wind and solar are not going to cut it. So, I mean, and South Australia is farthest along of anybody in terms of trying to do this. And I've been following closely as to what they're doing. There's a number of articles uh, on, on my blog, climate, etc. judithcurry.com by transmission engineers and a, yeah. and a grid operator from New Zealand who's been writing the articles on my blog about how and why this isn't working. So, I mean, this is... I mean, it's a it's political decision. It's, it's misguided in so many ways. And it's introducing so many risks, not just to, I, I mean, our whole society depends on electricity, everything yeah. that we do. Okay, and this is, if we're adding instability and higher costs into our electric utility system, we're damaging our economy, we're reducing our vulnerability, we're increasing our vulnerability to extreme weather events and so on and so forth. I mean, for what? <laughs> you yeah. know, in, a, in, in a futile attempt to slow down the slow creep of global warming, it just makes absolutely no sense. Well, I, I'm sitting here in Canada right now. We contribute apparently about 1.6% to 1.5% of global emissions. And uh, we have canceled uh, really tens of billions of dollars in, uh, in fossil fuel projects, natural gas and, and uh, oil. And my question always is, what do we get in return? Because it sure as hell didn't impact the climate. And what's a bit embarrassing for the government is the finance, current finance minister, Dep De uh, deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, made it clear in an interview with the Financial Times that Canada can't even move the dial. No matter what we do, we can't move the dial. And yet we're prepared to give away tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, jobs, et cetera. You know, the list is a long one. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Let, I want to come back to the extreme weather events, though. Now, you, as you said, you first became, and again, obviously people knew you in the community, the scientific community, but your hurricane paper that, um, from what I can understand, from my, my background is, of course, the media cherry-picked what you said in that paper. But I want to maybe get a, a simpler com a comment on every fire that broke out. And it's a tragedy in some areas, you know, obviously, but it's got to be climate change. Everything is climate change. We've got a flood. It's climate change. We've got this. It's climate change. And I mean, it takes two seconds to get that explanation into the media. <laughs> well, it represents, okay, first, even the IPCC acknowledges that there's, you know, very little relationship between a warming temperature and worsening extreme events, apart from heat waves, you know, yeah. floods, droughts, hurricanes, you know, all this other stuff, you know, there's not much there. And on the benefit side of it, 
we're getting fewer cold, extreme cold events. And there's nine times greater mortality from cold events and from heat events. I mean, this is buried. <laughs> you know, the good news is that overall mortality is lessened in a warmer climate. You know, <laughs> where have you heard that? Well, you haven't probably. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, again, again, I'm in Canada. We wouldn't mind a little more warm weather throughout the year. And this is the thing about winners and losers. I mean, Canada, Siberia, northern China, I mean, they would certainly benefit from warmer temperatures. It would increase agricultural productivity, etc. I mean, in the U.S., people like warm, they hate warm winters, okay? So they're leaving Illinois and New York, and they're moving to Texas, Florida, and Arizona, which are southern warm states. But this whole issue about politicians blaming you know, all, you know, the Maui fires or the Libyan floods or the, the floods in New York City. These are some recent ones. Oh, it's climate change. They, they throw up their hands and they can't do anything. Well, it's, it, it's an out. You know, it's a, it's a sleazy, cheap out where they can deflect the blame for their mm-hmm. bad decisions in terms of land use policy, infrastructure, emergency management, warnings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on climate change. And the only thing we can do is stop burning fossil fuels. You know, so, so it, it's just a convenient out for poor governance and poor decision making. Uh, let me come to, you know, here's the problem for individuals, you know, and people who aren't versed in necessarily immersed in the science, et cetera. Where do we get good information? Because I don't <laughs> trust, I don't, yeah, I'm sorry. okay, yes, <laughs> you're laughing because that's impossible. But I mean, I know, you know, by simply doing the work, I hear, I read what the media says is one in the latest IPCC report. I don't have to look very far to say, wait a second, it didn't actually say that. Or wait but, a second, you've missed a very important conclusion here. Because it's a, a pure agenda getting pushed. I don't think there's much debate on that. So I'm just wondering, and again, we could probably talk hours on this particular thing, but can give me a quick snapshot of what do we well, do as individuals? Okay, the Working Group 1 report from the IPCC, forget the summary for policymakers, there is some good information in there. Okay, it's a starting yeah. point. Um, in terms of reliable information, allow me to make a plug for my own information sources. Yeah. I have a blog, Climate Etc., judithcurry.com, where we discuss a whole range of climate-relevant issues, fundamental science, um, the energy transition. You know, I have a, a great group of people who contribute mm-hmm. posts. I mentioned the previous ones, you know, about the electricity grid and things like that, and also about policy and politics and adaptation and a whole range of things like that. And so open it up for discussion. And my blog is probably the only one out there on this topic where people from both sides of the debate show up to shout it out. Um, I try to keep the insult, you know, I, I moderate to remove insults, but there's a real debate. There was an incredible one a couple of weeks ago um, by a, um, a Greek hydrologist, Demetrius Kousianis, who was talking about the, the carbon dioxide budget and the uncertainties and the way he was reasoning about it, which is quite contrary to what you normally see. 
And I think this has almost 600 comments. We have all sorts of um, scientists and other mm -hmm. interested people with technical background discussing, challenging, and Demetrius is there responding to all these questions. Yeah. And you can't find that anywhere else, okay, on the blog. The other thing, if you're just starting out, I mean, there are a few good books out there. First, I have to plug my own, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. Um, it integrates, you know, the, the politics and social psychology of what's going on with an understanding of climate models and what, we might expect in the 21st century. And, and a, the third part has a deep foundation in risk science, um, which goes into how, we, how badly we've mischaracterized risk, how we should go about doing it and how we should you know, manage it. Um, a couple of other books out there I can recommend, Unsettled yeah. by, by Stephen Coonan and False Alarm by Bjorn Lomborg. I mean, those are two recent books that I can yep. recommend. I mean, the, between my book, Kunin's and Lomborg's book, we cover, you know, the full spectrum of, I think, the relevant territories. So I can recommend those books. Um, well, I, I can, sorry, uh, I can recommend Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. The other thing I really enjoyed about the book, but let me just say is it is, I, I'm the type of person, okay, where's your source? What do you, you know, how did you get that? Where does it come from? And my goodness, is that well supported through footnotes? You know, when I read the footnotes or, I, or something that I'm not aware of and I just want to go, okay, so give me more. Oh, the book is brilliant at, at giving me more. So you've got a nice read of what, 230 pages or something and you get the footnotes. So I, I want to plug that because I think this is what's missing. Um, yeah. you know, 1,500 footnotes, which really? direct you to a range of sources. Um, yeah, I, 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 someone emailed, told me it was taking him forever to get through my book because he was zinging, yeah. you know, through all the footnotes on each chapter. Oh, wow, I didn't know that, you yeah. know. So. No, that's what I enjoyed. The other thing, and I, I, I forgive me, I should have said this up front to make sure people are clear. You're not saying there's not climate change or there's not man influenced on climate. I want to make yeah. sure that that's the, you know, they say those things, not just about you, but about someone else, the whole denier label is to, so they don't have to discuss it. So we okay. said, you know, or things like, uh, there's a 97% consensus of scientists, you know, really, you know, okay. really, Come on, it's just such nonsense. Okay. Here's what we know, the facts that nobody disagrees on. Yeah. Global temperature has increased overall since about 1860. Humans emit CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. CO2 and these other greenhouse gases have an infrared emission spectra and act to warm the planet. Nobody questions any of those things. However, those three facts don't tell us anything about the most consequential issues. These include how much of the recent warming is caused by humans versus natural variability, how much climate or how will climate change in the 21st century, and whether human-caused warming is dangerous. I mean, there's widespread disagreement and uncertainty on those um, factors. And then, of course, you know, the relevant policy issue, um, the issue as is to whether this rapid transition um, away from fossil fuels and toward 
wind and solar energy is overall going to make us better off or worse off both now and in the future. <laughs> and it's pretty clear it's going to make us worse off, uh, which is a case that I make in the risk assessment part of my book. Yeah. Uh, let me just, uh, by the way, you may have caught it, but there is a, a recent paper out of Statistics Norway, and Canadians will understand we have uh, Statistics Canada. And their question was, to what extent are temperature levels changing due to greenhouse gas emissions? But here's the conclusion. The results imply that the effect of man-made CO2 emissions does not appear to be sufficiently strong to cause systematic changes in the pattern of the temperature fluctuation. In other words, our analysis indicates that with the current level of knowledge, it seems impossible to determine how much of the temperature increase is due to emissions of CO2. Well, that's a pretty startling conclusion. But again, my point is it's not in the public. I just want to talk about it. I, you know, I'm, I'm not pretending to have the scientific background to say yay or nay to that, but yeah. it's not well, discussed. I, I glanced at that paper. I saw it mentioned on Twitter. Mm -hmm. My understanding, they were focused on looking at the temperature data in, in Norway rather yeah. than global Sorry, temperature. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing about it is these are statisticians. They certainly know how to deal with data. And, but they don't have any skin in the game in terms of the climate debate. You know, so they don't come into it with preconceived notions or I have to do it yes. this way in order, you know, so they had no skin in the game. <laughs> so they can, you know, just call it like they see it. And I thought, yeah. oh, I love this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what an advantage. Uh, you know, I remember when uh, you published a public uh, letter when you uh, resigned. And uh, I just thought it was so telling uh, you're talking about uh, research and other professional activities are professionally rewarded only if they are channeled in certain directions approved by a politicized academic establishment. You know, and, and this is one of the other challenges that funding, I mean, there's, there's tons of people who disagree with aspects. I'm talking, sorry, not tons of people, scientists who disagree mm -hmm. with many aspects or some aspects of the whole sort of, let's call it climate agenda or the, mm -hmm. the narrative that we're getting fed, but they don't dare speak out. Because, I mean, good luck getting a funding paper, you know, your paper or your research well, funded. I mean, the whole academic e ecosystem is just, you know, promoting this issue. I mean, the professional societies are advocates for this. These are the people who publish the journals, mm -hmm. you know, and they're ed editors or gatekeepers. I mean, they don't even send contrary papers out for review. <laughs> they just get... Nope, sorry, wow. not interested. Um, the, the external recognition from professional science, who, who gets societies, who gets the big awards, um, who gets the big funding, funding, awards, publication, and prestige journals. This is what um, gets you promotions at the university, gets you big salaries at the university, attracts donor funding for big institutes at the universities. So, you know, the universities have figured out, you know, what what side of yeah. bread they're, you know, is is the butter is the butter on. So, well, I mean, there you have it. You have this whole um complex academic, you know, political, economic, university, industrial complex surrounding this whole issue, you know, with reinforcing each other, not to mention the media. Um, so there you have it. You know, this is a big, 
<laughs> juggernaut, oh, yeah. the big juggernaut. Uh, and, and there's many reasons, but one is there's an agenda about that global control of people that we also saw in COVID. Uh, uh, and again, I'm not saying yes or no to any aspect, but I know that we weren't allowed to ask questions. It wasn't invited. It wasn't the scientific, uh, you know, public discussion. We've heard from many, many uh, medical uh, people, medical scientists, uh, echoing that same sentiment. But that's why I think it's incumbent upon people to educate themselves. And, and that's why I want to give a, a, another shout out to the book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. And I, I'm just sitting here laughing, thinking about, I think P.G. O'Rourke had a great line about that. He was looking at a protest of, of young people, you know, very vehement uh, climate change advocates. And he says, they're prepared to do anything to save the planet, except read a book. So in that case, we, we, I think we have to sit there and own some responsibility and do some reading on our part. You've certainly done your part uh, to educate the public. And I just want to say thank you so much for finding time for us. And I'll put you on the spot because it's always embarrassing if you say no, you know, right, you know while we're here broadcasting. Said, I got to get back. There's so many other aspects I want to talk to you about. It's obviously a monstrous size subject and uh, you handle it so beautifully. So I'll put you on the spot and say, let's visit again in the near future. Oh, I'd be delighted to. Great stuff. Thank you, Judith, for finding time. Time now for the quote of the week. And for that, I'm going to go to the CBC. And this quote of the week could have fit right in our goofy Hall of Fame because that's where, of course, the CBC resigns, or could resign anyways. And I have to admit, in a week that finds groups like QP cheering on the mass murder of civilians, Boy, 270 young people attending a music festival for peace being gunned down. Women raped, some victims raped beside the bodies of murdered friends. Bodies paraded in the streets. I, I guess I'm saying that nothing surprises me. So to the quote. It's important, though, to understand the context that Hamas has been designated a terrorist organization by the federal government. And this week, in a leaked email written by CBC's Director of Journalistic Standards and Practices and Public Truff, I think his pronunciation is George Ashai, to all CBC journalists, urging them not to refer to Hamas as terrorists. In quotes, do not refer to militants, soldiers, or anyone else as terrorists. The notion of terrorism remains heavily politicized and is part of the story. Even when quoting a government or a government source referring to fighters as terrorists, we should add context to ensure the audience understands this is an opinion, not fact. Well, actually, it's a fact, according to Canadian law. Hamas are terrorist fighters. But you know what? In the end, I don't need government to tell me that of slaughtering individual or innocent civilians, seniors, children, the rapes, parading bodies of uh, people through the streets after they've been murdered. I don't need anyone to tell me that's the actions of terror terrorists. And here's an example, though, of how the CBC policy plays out in news coverage. Ottawa U law professor, Canadian research chair in e-commerce, Michael Geist, provides a shocking example. This is how the CBC reported the story in quotes. Adi Vital Kaplun, who was, has family ties in Ottawa, is dead as a result of the conflict in Israel. That's how the CBC put it. What's the real story? An innocent woman with two of her children, the children are aged four and six months, were abducted from her home. She was murdered just for being Jewish. But in CBC speak, that becomes dead as a result of the conflict in Israel. It's outrageous.
On Money Talks, we're extremely interested in the lack of rental accommodation, of course. That's an understatement. I've been talking about it for three years. Well, back a couple of months, we had Ralph Vanderwall with us. He's the chief compliance officer for Easy Invest, and this is the kind of development they do. But at that time, he was just on the search. His team was looking for appropriate properties that have potential for them, the obviously risk-reward situation. Well, they finally found something. So I wanted to bring Ralph back on, hold him to his word. He said he'd come back and tell us exactly what the process was for him. So, Ralph, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. And I might add, I don't think I said this up top, you're the chief compliance officer for Easy Invest. So, Ralph, tell me about this process because, I mean, it was ongoing when we last chatted you know, um, just over a few months, a couple of months ago. Tell us what that process looked like and what things you were trying to do, because I think it's instructive for anybody looking for investments in this area. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Good to be with you again. Yeah, last time we got together, I think uh, we called it a train wreck. Well, the bad news or the good news is the train wreck just keeps getting worse. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. bad news if you're trying to get into the markets, and it's good news if you're invested in it. So we've got 30 years of really bad government policies on all levels have left us as per CMHC with a shortage of 3.5 million homes, 3.5 million. So based on last year's numbers of newcomers alone, by the end of today, we'll have some 3,000 new folks on the ground who are going to be looking for a place to live. So what we do at Easy Invest is, Easy Invest is basically the investment dealer firm that allows us to bring investors on board. Uh, It's registered with the Securities Commissions in Western Canada. The commission ensures we are in compliance with securities laws. They review our documents. We have to provide audited statements and all that good stuff. But it's the mutual fund trust that we own where the money is earned. And that's called the Western Canada Monthly Income Fund. So, and, and what kind of stuff are you invested in at this moment? I'll get to the new project in a sec, but just to give us, again, a quick background. Yeah, so the Western Canada Monthly Income Fund uh, looks for real estate projects. Uh, We're just coming out of our project on Vancouver Island. We did 30 townhouses there. They pre-sold all about two years ago. We're finishing up construction on the last couple of units, so we're almost out of there in about a month from now. So a couple of months back, we uh, put a deposit, and we fully acquired by now a really beautiful site in Maple Ridge, one of the fastest-growing communities. And what we're going to be doing there is build bread-and-butter condos. Canadians need a place to live. Uh, we were pre-approved. We have a development permit for 36 units. It's on the waterfront. Uh, we've got a building permit, which we uh, applied for a couple of months ago. So that should be get us into the ground in the spring. And we'll be out of there in about two years from now. now one of the things you, you alluded to up top was saying, obviously, we've, and we've been talking about a ton on Money Talks, is the population growth and the pressure that it's put on the housing side and healthcare and other infrastructure. But one thing for sure, I mean, it didn't take a, a PhD to understand that when people come here, they need a place to live. And as you pointed out right off the top, I mean, the CMHC has been very clear. We're not close to meeting the demand. You know, looking at the population growth, as you said, over the next 10 years, we're short something, what, 3.2 million, is it? Something like that anyways. I mean, so it requires that. But what about the environment specifically? Like you're dealing with an environment that's higher interest rates. That's number one. You know the demand side's going to be there. Tell us a little bit about how you came to, well, you, a lot of choices and sites. How did, why did you go to Maple Ridge? Is it population driven again to greater Vancouver? The numbers have to work. So we've got a development team here. We look at dozens of projects before we make a commitment with our investors' money through the Mutual Fund Trust, and the numbers simply have to work out. So the bigger players are still moving around Vancouver. Obviously, massive population growth here as well. 
but the land cost in Vancouver is much higher. In the outlying communities such as Maple Ridge, you can find really good deals. So what we look for is not a piece of raw land that we take through the whole development process, because in Canada, that keeps getting longer and longer. Yeah. You're, you're looking at two, three years just to get your permits, and the cost of capital adds up to the end user in the end. So what we look for is uh, places where development permits are in progress or, or, or already in place. Then we simply come in, take over, and we bring it to completion. Yeah, another great point you're making that I think obviously everyone in the development business understands this well. Even someone looking for a reno, you know, needs approval. They understand this, but the development time frame has been under a lot of criticism because as, as you say, you know, you've got the money lined up, et cetera, et cetera, and you've purchased the land or, or whatever form you've done in that way, but the clock's ticking and the clock ticks with dollars. So yeah, yeah. it's just interesting to hear you say that. You're trying to avoid that risk by finding somebody who else has already suffered through that process. And suffer we do, let me tell you. You hear, uh, for example, the, the, the new leader of the Conservative Party saying that you know if they get into government, they will change things around because things have to move quicker in Canada. And yeah. we deal with that on a daily basis. You know, we've got 1.2 million new people coming to Canada last year, which is great. This is not the forum to debate whether that's a smart policy or not, but the fact is there and it creates a massive demand on real estate. Then when we take things to the municipal level with all our drawings and architecture and millions of dollars invested, the municipal level goes, well, why don't you take a year of vacation and maybe we'll approve it. So the cost of capital gets added to the eventual price of each unit. I think it's so important because obviously affordable housing has been a major topic for a thousand years, I think, you know, but it's been very, very prominent. And and again, my experience is a heck of a lot of people don't understand where some of that costs come from. And that delay process is important. And I know uh, whether you're getting rezoning in land, that's going to be rezoned, but they say, as you said, take a year off and we'll let you know, you know, or it's the actual development of the process because we're in a hurry for this stuff. And when I say that, I mean, we know the demand just continues to build. We don't meet it this year. Well, heck, it's just going to compound next year's challenge uh, within that. So it's interesting to see that you're trying to avoid those kind of delays and the costly delays. What else are you looking for besides that? I mean, from there, do you say, okay, I've got to get the team to actually build this darn thing? Yeah, our our fund is not big enough to do several projects at the same time. Over the next few years, it will. So we're fully focused on Maple Ridge right now. Uh, We got 36 units. We're going into pre-sales in February. And if it goes according to the plans, like last time when we did Beach House at Saratoga, we sold out in 45 days. Yeah. So we've got a very good marketing team. Again, the demand is so huge that as long as you build something that the market is looking for, it's not super luxurious, you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to sell out. Because even though the higher interest rates are having an impact on many Canadians that are trying to get into the market, uh, if you look at the stats, there's many studies out there that show that about 58% of units are bought by new immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an immigrant myself here from the Netherlands, but in the last century, you had many people that come to Canada with very little money. They came out of poverty-stricken poverty or war-torn areas. These days, uh, amongst those, you also get immigrants that come to Canada with a lot of money, and they buy yeah. property. Yeah, well, and well, I may say that, and that's apparent what's been going on. But but your point vis-a-vis the interest rates is an important one. But again, you have to sit there and you evaluate. Okay, what's the cost of money? What's the cost of materials? What's the cost of that? So obviously, inflation 
and expectations, you know, go into it, at least in certain areas of uh, the material build and, and the labor build too, of course. Let me share a little secret with you in the development world. And there's a lot of developers out there complaining about high interest rates and the high cost of everything. But in development in Canada, there's simply a lot of profits. And what we do at the Mutual Fund Trust is we share 35% of those profits with the investors plus advanced interest. So currently, even though we had three years of, of lockdowns, COVID, uh, supply chain issues, yep. inflation like never before, our investors are currently earning about 15% per year. Now, this is where we have to state you know, results in the past and no guarantee for the future. Yep. But if, if you look at a normalized market, even with higher interest rates, there's simply a lot of money to be made. And unfortunately or fortunately, the federal government keeps sending us overwhelming numbers of people. So I'm very con convinced and very confident that this uh, situation will continue for many, many years. Uh, but I also want to come back. I should have noted it at the time, but as you pointed out, and we've always said this on Money Talks, this takes a solution from three levels of government. They're yeah. all in play there, all with a significant role to play. I mean, I just think provincially, if they have a, pr a property purchase tax out in British Columbia and other provinces have similar, uh, some don't. You know, I'm always thrilled with Alberta doesn't have that. But the point is, it's three levels of government that are in play here. And uh, let me, uh, like, these are for, for owner-occupied in there. Uh, when, you, you told me, but just remind me, what's the time frame then when you look at this? Um, so, for example, new investors that come into the fund right now, they'll get a profit share in about two years, maybe two and a half years from now. And in the, mm -hmm. in the meantime, they get an early advance interest, which gets paid every month. So, yeah, this the next one is about two and a half years from this point forward. Well, as I say, this is, uh, I think it's the number one topic on people's minds, you know, because then you can get to people who, I mean, I'm desperate for them and I'm not a Johnny come lately to this whatsoever, but people are not only can't you afford the rent, you may not even be able to move it, find something, you know, yeah. so it's still an interesting situation when you talk about the cost of a mortgage, because uh, if you're looking at comparing it to urban centers like Vancouver, which of course is the worst case scenario, but you're still talking hundreds of thousands of people, you know, or Toronto or the other, uh, you know, so high value markets. I mean, it still works in favor of ownership in a lot of instances than over renting. I mean, that's a situation that's fairly unusual when the Absolutely. rents have gone up so much because of that demand that, well, it's still, you know, even at, well, I mean, the other thing, I've been around a long time. I, I tell you right now, I would have sold my left arm if I could have got something like a, you know, six or 7% mortgage. I still remember when I got under 10 for the first time and I, yep. we held a party, you know, and, 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 and I remember a 7% mortgage I got and I couldn't believe we got it. You know what I mean? So it's a bit of yeah. perspective. It's just that we've been spoiled and many took advantage of it, of the record low rates. Uh, yes. You know, um, but yeah, it's an, it's a fascinating business right now because, you know, d demand continues to increase. You know, there's challenges at other levels. And bottom line, that's why that's why I've never developed anything in my life, despite a pretty big familiarity, because it takes expertise. Yeah, we've got a large team that takes care of that. But here's something to think about. The interest rates are higher than they've been over the last 10 years or so. But they're at about average over the last 50 years, about 7% or so. Yeah. But a lot of people are waiting for interest rates to come down. But here's what's going to happen, according to many studies. As soon as interest rates stabilize and come down a little bit, there'll be a massive amount of people that are suddenly able to get into the market again. And guess yeah. what prices are going to be doing again? Yeah. No, it's interesting. Uh, the psychology plays a major part in this. Ralph, I want to thank you for taking time again. Interesting. I love to get on the ground level and see what people who are actually putting money up and doing the deeds are uh, actually doing with that uh, all the stuff that they have to bring to bear to have a successful project. Ralph, thanks very much. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure.
you know, obviously there's a ton going on that's uh, garnered our attention, but I wanted to bring one story in case you missed it. I find it fascinating for the future of energy, the future of oil, the statement made by ExxonMobil about that future of oil. And I got Michael Levy on with me. He's been following this story. Mike, let's start with what happened this week or the big announcement. Well, you know, there's the old expression, Mike, if you want to do something, just don't talk about it. Put your money where your mouth is. And that's what Exxon did this week. It's just huge. Uh, their bet on fossil fuels not going anywhere for the foreseeable future when they announced the acquisition of Pioneer Natural Resources. It's a U.S. $60 billion deal. It's the largest buyout since Exxon acquired mobile oil to decades ago. And this is Exxon doubling down on the fact that fossil fuels, when the world on fossil fuels, the world's attempting to transition to lower carbon energy sources to slow climate change. Well, that might be coming, Mike. But right now, Exxon is looking into the next 10 or 15 years and saying, not so fast. Yeah, and I thought that was the significance, or that's what jumped out at me immediately. This is obviously, I mean, it's the biggest deal, as you said, in what, a generation? Uh, you know, they were in financial problems going back, but of course, with the rise in oil prices, you know, they've been they've been going gangbusters, uh, so they got the money. Well, they do, and uh, it's not only the rise in oil prices, as you say, but it's lo them looking into the future and saying, this isn't going to go away. There's going to be continuing rising in oil prices because they wouldn't be making a huge bet like this. Six, you know, this U.S. 60 billion, again, wouldn't have gone ahead unless they saw this 10 to 15 year window. And, Mike, they're making unprecedented profits, even as we try and switch mm -hmm. to more environmentally friendly ways of producing energy. Yeah, well, obviously with those high oil prices, you know what's interesting though, Mike, they make this move and you look at the International Energy Agency and they say the demand for oil is going to peak out this decade. But then juxtapose that with OPEC put out their world oil outlook just this past week. And they say that the world needs to invest 14 trillion in the oil sector through 2045 to meet the demand. And what their OPEC secretary general says, if we don't do it, that potentially sets the world up for chaos. So you've got, you know, two different scenarios out there sort of debating where this oil demand is. And I guess it's pretty clear where ExxonMobil came down on that on that debate. Uh, well, absolutely, Mike. Uh, they made $55.5 billion last year. Well, they didn't do that from selling less oil or less demand. But I think one of the most interesting points in this whole discussion is that uh, Northeast BC and Alberta have that same kind of a basin where you can go and frack and extract oil from the ground in both provinces. So uh, Canadians not so fast on us not using or going ahead with uh, uh, um, new, new wells, new ways to bring energy out of the ground. BC and Alberta could be at the forefront of that. Well, but we've got to keep in mind, we've had trouble attracting capital, you know, for oil and gas extraction because of our regulatory framework and sort of a, a broad attitude. But your point's well taken that there is that opportunity. But keep in mind, we don't even want to embrace the natural gas opportunity in the East Coast, for example. We didn't want to embrace the need for more pipelines. Of course, we've got, you know, uh, whatever they call it, Kinder Morgan, you know, that pipeline. So, yeah, but I'm just saying that brings us back in the political realm where there'd be a heck of a debate.
Well, there would be, Mike, but there is no doubt that some good amount of the revenue that the government of Canada collects every year is from the energy business. And I don't know that they might not get a bit myopic about this and say, uh, all right, I know that we want to go green, but on the way, could we pad the uh, federal treasury? There you go. Well, Mike, as I say, this one's to be continued because, of course, they may get antitrust scrutiny from the Biden administration or something like that. But in the meantime, I think the message, as you gave at the outset, is that it's a pretty big vote of confidence that North American demand is going to stay there because that's where ExxonMobil is going to focus, you know, all the extra production and the investment they're going to put into it. So, yeah, we'll be here to see it. And I think there will be fireworks. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Have a good weekend. Time now for the shocking stat of the week, and it's straightforward. And it's a measure of how much things have changed toward, I guess, personal freedom and free speech in particular on university campuses. And judges by, uh, judging by the rallies in favor of Hamas and its attack on Israel, the attacks on free speech is not all that's changed on university campuses. But it's one of those. And while, you, while you weren't looking, you know, we weren't paying attention, I want you to see what happened. The stat, by the way, is 250. Actually, it's 250 out of 250. I'm talking about U.S. college rankings for student free speech and open inquiry. The rankings are compiled by FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and College Pulse. A powerful argument, by the way, can be made that instead of defending free speech, many universities have become champions of censorship, with speakers canceled, professors hounded, curriculums changed, statues torn down. So who came first, though? Best university to go to if you're worried about free speech and free inquiry. Well, number one was Michigan Technological University. It was followed by Auburn, University of New Hampshire, Oregon State, and Florida State, rounding out the top five. Now back to the shocking stat. Look who came in last. 250th out of 250. Harvard. Harvard ranked as the least open environment for free speech and open inquiry. I want to talk the pulse of the real estate market right now. And of course, it's a national market when you get a lot of stats, but we'll look a little bit more individually and how those markets are doing. It has the latest increase in interest rates going back in July had an impact. Uh, we, they certainly, when they promised not to raise rates, it had a positive impact, all sorts of things surrounding that. So I'm going to bring in Ozzy Jurek right now, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, let's just start with where the numbers are at and what they're telling you. Well, the big thing is that to understand that they're numbers and depending on which numbers you co compare to what numbers, you, you may get different results. So the key is to take a little time because sales in BC are 10% higher than last year, but last year was an anemic year in, in real estate sales and we are 45% lower than 2020. In fact, if you go to the BC Real Estate Association, bcrea.ca, great statistics there. And I have an interesting graph which shows when the banks started tightening in March 2022, we went straight down in sales. I mean, straight like a rocket, we went mm -hmm. down right into December and we dropped some 50% in sales on average. Then the Bank of Canada paused and we stayed nicely down until the end of December. And then we went up straight into July where the Bank of Canada resumed. And now guess what? We're back down again. And the real bad numbers are in Toronto. I mean, new listings are up 44%, active listings 38%. But at the same time, unlike BC, where we at least our sales are higher over the anemic last year, in Toronto, they're 8% lower than even that. 
Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that's worrisome given the percentage in the overall economy that uh, residential real estate plays, whether it's in construction, the purchasing of a home also usually results in some pretty good, in, uh, you know, pickup in sort of retail sales as people look to spruce it up or even preparing to sale, uh, sell. They may paint it or whatever. So, I mean, it's just such an important industry for the overall economy. Uh, what did you find? Uh, are, are we got the numbers yet from Edmonton and Calgary? Well, actually, they're, they're counter-trending. Edmonton actually is 23% less listings, which is always a sign, and an increase of 33% in sales. In Calgary, the rocket went underneath Calgary, and there are all-time records everywhere, both sales and prices and so on. But if you look at Vancouver listings and Surrey listings, new uh, single-family home listings in Surrey are up by 40%. In Vancouver by 27%. So the market is changing. And what people are really worried about, Mike, is are they going to raise rates again? And yeah. some of them are jumping into the, the market right now because they're worried about October 25th. Yeah, when the Bank of Canada meets again, uh, although they may get some relief there still as the signs aren't there, you know, the market analysts aren't saying we're going to get a bump up. But I see exactly what you mean. I mean, the psychology, whether we're talking stocks or housing or whatever, plays such an important part. And there is an environment of uh, uncertainty. And also, Ozzy, aren't we getting to a point where we really, you know, it's just going to eliminate so many people, uh, eligibility, even get a mortgage, but the stress test, that kind of stuff. I mean, we're getting very close to that when we're talking, you know, some people are talking much higher rates. Yeah, no question about it. Even Benjamin Tall, who hates the idea for the Bank of Canada, but he thinks they're going to they're gonna raise. And then you have all these talking heads. Bill Ackman says they stay the same. Jamie Dimon allows that a 7% rate in the U.S. is possible. You know, Mike, what we need is stabilization. You know, yeah. we need some certainty. I mean, right now, an investor that that's, goes on to a pre-sale condo, pays 7.9% for an investment mortgage. Hey, if that's gone up another 25%, and we read the trust test is already over 8, what what, what what it goes to 9? So we need some some certainty and, and yep. uh, soon. Well, and as I said in the opening comments today, you know, there's a lot of other pressures. You know, Bank of Canada sets the short-term rate, but there's a lot of pressure pushing long-term rates up, which is why I think a lot of people have been surprised by the overall jump over the last couple of months in bond rates, which again, as you alluded to last week, you look at that five-year bond, that has a major influence on what five-year rates are going to do. So that's what you keep an eye on. But I still don't like the environment uh, in terms of what longer-term 10-year, 20-year yields are going to be. And, of course, we'll do more on that. But let me ask about another thing, because I, I caught this uh, Leger poll by uh, Royal LePage. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that higher-priced markets do, is it changes a behavior. In this case, this whole idea of co-ownership. Yeah, we've always had sort of co-ownership where you form a company, they buy an apartment building, you buy shares in it, and that those shares allow you the use of a condo. But this is different. This is co-ownership of individuals. Well, apparently as many as 6% of Canadian homeowners co-own their property with somebody else. 89% go with family members and 7% with friends and another 8% co-own with somebody who's not a friend or family member. So very, very interesting uh, uh, to, to look at that because, of course, it's affordability that they're worried about and yeah. this helps do it. Well, as I say, I mean, you get these sort of trends and, and the develop the market develops around that. So that's going to be one that I'm going to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, this whole idea of co 
ownership. Hey, but I got to finish with this, Ozzy. I was looking at Ozbuzz, ozbuzz.ca, and I got to I got to tell you, you had a head shaker there that I want you to explain. But you know, as I say, put a smile on my face when you were saying, "Hey, if you are in a situation where you are divorcing, maybe it's best to have a co-share agreement and not sell the house." Well, it's funny. It comes from an actual case where there was a divorce. Uh, she moved into, uh, they had a beautiful house, you know, a really lovely, lovely house with a basement and so on. But she moved into a, a mediocre condo at 1900 I mean, she called it really mediocre, and he spent $2,300 in a studio. And they found themselves six months later living a totally different life, not just apart from each other, but just... Yeah. And so I made the comment, I said, well, look, it'd be probably better to just stay where you are. I mean, as long as you don't go at each other with knives, you know. I mean, but, so, so that's one of your rules, no weapons allowed in the house. But I, I think that's, kind of, first of all, I think you say financially, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, as you say, you don't sell the house, you create these set of rules for both of you to live by. Uh, as I say, it makes financial sense. Well, we'll just see if it makes emotional sense too. Well, the thing is, you know, you look, you can do it with Airbnb. Why can't you do it with you? You know, now I've had, yeah. believe it or not, nine people wrote me that they either are investigating staying together or they actually did it. And one guy says, we wrote a book, we followed your advice, put everything in writing. And he says, we have uh, over 50 pages and we initialed each page and we're actually quite excited. And then I had the funniest was he wrote back, he says, Ozzy, we're now into this two months. Uh, every night we're toasting Ozzy because we're now no longer married, but we're friends with benefits. <laughs> oh, for gosh sakes. <laughs> and, you know what? Don't set me up with a straight line like that ever, ever. <laughs> it takes way too much self-restraint on my part. Well, I think you should start the uh, video series or, or, you know, the reality series, and we'll follow a couple of couples and see how that works out. And uh, and we'll put it marriage advice with Ozzy, home yeah. health. <laughs> Ozzy, thanks for that. It's, it give me a lot to think about on that one. Go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. And uh, we're putting our Ozbuzz newsletter out uh, this weekend. So if you want it, sign up uh, at ozbuzz.ca. And I want to leave you with this thought by George Carlin, who said, in Canada, anybody can become prime minister. And... Uh, that's the problem. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek. Well, obviously, I guess I say this every week. There's so much happening, but I think I can uh, validate that with looking around. Obviously, in this case, we are in the aftermath or the, or the, of the attacks a week ago, but also, of course, in all the reaction, all the things that have come out all the distressing information, et cetera. Well, the markets aren't immune from that too. I want to bring Victor Adair and go live to the trading desk with Victor. Vic, I mean, I know you've been writing this, but it really is a case of where is the stress being felt? What are people reacting? How are they reacting? All of those things, because it was already a precarious situation, now a tragic geopolitical one. Well, Mike, if I look at the market, um, and I say, where's the stress? Uh, where's it showing up? I mean, the first thing I see is gold. Gold is up uh, at the end of this week, about $125 from the lows that we made a week ago. And those wow. lows, by the way, were the year to date lows. Leading into those lows, uh, gold had fallen, I think, 13 of the previous 14 days. But 
the other thing that goes with it here, gold option volatility has just soared. And I, I kind of asked myself, would I want to be short gold calls here? Not on your life. Um, yeah. So, so it, you know, it's almost an automatic that, yeah, gold is up because there's stress in the market. We're going into a weekend and that sort of thing. Yeah, your point, though, is very well taken that gold had sort of be like a spring. It had been pushed down 13 out of 14 days. So now you've given it excuse and the other background, et cetera. And obviously people have jumped in, maybe covering shorts in some cases. I don't know, but uh, certainly people have jumped in. And that's been one of the, the valves. So let me ask you about the U.S. dollar, because I, as you've been telling us since I had dark hair, uh, which not, nobody can remember, by the way. So I just make claims that I used to have dark hair. But, uh, you know, that when times of stress, money finds the U.S., whether it's for opportunity or safety in this case. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've written in my research reports over the last 40 years that capital comes to America for safety and opportunity. Well, this week, it's safety, very much so. But I have to also point this out. The Swiss franc has just moved to all-time highs against the euro currency. And as people that have listened to you and I talk for years know, that's one of my favorite currency barometers to pay attention to. When I see the euro rising sharply against, I should say, the Swiss rising sharply against the euro, yeah. I see that as a major red flag of stress. Yeah, abs you know, absolutely. But that's that's been a very impressive move on that side, too. I mean, as I say, when you look around where the stresses uh, are, uh, let me ask you uh, a little bit about the bond market, though, because that's something that we've been focusing on after, again, it's been down. It feels pretty relentlessly. Yeah, maybe just before I get to that, Mike, I got to point out the other classic, classic sign of stress is when the U.S. dollar and gold are both up at the same time. Oh, I, th I think yeah. the last time we saw that was when the Russians moved into the Ukraine. Coming to the bond market, uh, so bonds, prices have been going down. Yields have been going up here for about the last, uh, call it two months, thereabouts. I mean, really moving up. My take on it, and there's lots of takes, but if you cooked it down to one thing, I think the bond market has just been... Uh, worried de to death about the supply of bonds coming as governments continue to run deficits, continue to you know borrow money, print paper. Who's going to buy all this, I think, has been a real problem for the bond market. And here's the thing. Typically, in a situation like we have right now, the geopolitical environment, you would think that there'd be some money going to the relative safety of bonds. So the bonds, it's almost like they can't catch bid. We had a really poor, uh, long bond auction this week. You know, the bonds look to be picking themselves up off the mat, and they just got whammed again. So the bonds are struggling here. The other side of the interest rate market is short-term rates. You know, uh, and here again, I think it's a sign of stress. We've seen nearly a trillion dollars move into money market funds this year. Now, certainly, it hasn't all been to do with the, the latest geopolitical stress we got here. But I bet you this week, people who took a lot of their money and put it into the relative safety and let's call it the safety of money market funds are probably feeling you know, glad that they did that. Yeah, let me come back to the bonds for a second. Uh, just to remind people that the yield on your bond and the price go in opposite directions. So if all of a sudden the governments need just a ton of money, well, that's like they're selling. So the price of the bond goes down, the yield goes up. And that's a big worry, as, as we've said many times, the five-year mortgage in Canada is really set by the five-year bond rate, plus many other things. I mean, just the escalating interest costs, I think, is going to add to the stress. And keep this in mind, as you do, Vic, but hey, if interest rates go up, government debt servicing costs go up. 
but it all is borrowed money. They don't have any extra money. So they got to go out and borrow, increase the debt again, which increases their uh, need for more borrowing. I mean, it's a vicious cycle. And we're going to talk more about that in Money Talks because I think it's such a, a dangerous game that they're playing right now, or a vicious cycle. Uh, but what, what did you leave the week with, Vic, in terms of a trader? Did you sort of back off and say, it's too wild right now? You know, I'm going to sit back. I want to see, there, you know, because obviously a geopolitical, uh, you know, an escalation can happen in eight seconds. You know, I mean, y- your environment changes very dramatically, just as it did with the Hamas terrorist attack. Yeah, I think my takeaway on the week is early in the week, the stock market was going up. And honestly, I was puzzled by that. I thought, you know, with the geopolitical stress we got, uh, here's the stock market going up when these other things are, are doing, you know, showing signs of stress. It's like the stock market was, you know, they didn't care. Uh, I thought, okay, they got the green light special last week. We talked about that. I said, I think the Fed's done. I think the market's figured out the Fed is done raising rates. And for the last two years, I suppose, I've been saying once the market gets that idea, you know, it's going to be a green light special to buy stocks. But here, going into the weekend, the stock market started to get the shakes a little bit. I think they didn't like the bond auction, the the rising yield uh, on bonds troubling the stock market. But I think maybe the stock market would be saying, I think we got to get safe here. So, so we're seeing, for instance, small caps getting sold relative to the larger caps. The Dow yes. actually green here, while some of the, the 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 weaker issues are getting sold. Transports getting sold hard. So, yeah, there's uh, different signs of stress. But that was my puzzle earlier in the week. Um, Mike, these are you know I we're, we're just talking here financial markets, but the mar- the financial markets are reacting to the 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 real people stress out there that we yes. euphemistically call geopolitical stress. No, your point's well taken. I mean, that's what one of the things I said right at the top of the show. You know, there's lots to talk about. I'm not going to talk about much because the tragedy is what's front and center. The hardship, the horrendous depravity that we've seen and uh, bar- barbarism on display. So I appreciate your point. Yeah, we happen to be taught finance, but that's really the story still. Vic, I hope you go out and uh, I know you're going to have a busy weekend, but I look forward to looking at victoradare.com. Victor Adair, CA, I should have said, victoradare.ca, CA, victoradare.ca. I'm looking forward to seeing what charts you decide to put up this week because there's a lot going on. Well, I'm going to try to get a little of my report done. I'm in Calgary you know, working All with right. Joseph uh, with his uh, Catch the Energy conference. So we're trying to get something up. Uh, we'll, we'll see what I get done, but I will have some great charts. You're right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you an extra day because of that. That's right. Vic, enjoy the conference. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. So many to choose from, and each one would be controversial. But can we at least agree that on so many levels, something is seriously wrong in light of the celebrations in many parts of the country for the indiscriminate murder of Israelis of all ages? I mean, we all know the story. The murders, though, simply because they are Jewish. The rapes, the hostage-taking, mutilation of children. I mean, the list of every depravity goes on. Of course, there are differing opinions regarding the Israeli-Arab conflict or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or whatever way we want to phrase it. But you'd think that the barbarism, indiscriminate violence, would at least receive universal condemnation, or maybe at least silence is the best we can hope for for those who oppose Israel's existence. But that didn't happen. It's birds celebrations across the country in support of Hamas. 
I guess that puts to rest any notion or pretense of what used to be called shared Canadian values. I mean, if we can't agree that raping women or hurting children is an atrocity, then what can we agree on? But the lack of humanity, the degree to which victims have to be dehumanized in order to celebrate their demise is overwhelming. Obviously, the causes are complex, but responses to the massacre, I think, make it clear that the decolonization movement, let's decolonize this place, and it plays a significant role in the politics of the progressive left, I think it has its fingerprints all over the support expressed for the massacre. And I have to admit, I was shocked at the immediate reaction. I mean, my gosh, and the celebrations of the attacks, especially from some people and groups in academia and organized labor. And that brings me to my Goofy Award. It goes to QP Ontario President Fred Hahn and McMaster University's QP Local 3906, who openly cheered Hamas, tweeting, Palestine is rising, long live the resistance. I'm pleased to say that the backlash was instant, overwhelming. I mean, but QP's Ontario response to that backlash was to blame it, in their words, on online trolls affiliated, in quotes, with a highly organized pro-Israel lobby. I guess it's beyond their imagination to just ordinary, decent Canadians are appalled by the atrocities committed by Hamas many of which I'll bet are union members equally appalled, including some on QP. In fact, I'd hazard a guess that the majority of QP members are shocked and disgusted by the Hamas sneak attack on women, children, seniors, but they weren't consulted. And it's also a good bet that the union executives involved have diminished the public support for QP. And they're doing nothing, by the way, to fulfill the union's mandate in pushing work-related issues for their members. But that's ideological extremists for you. And I'll ask again, how did we get here on university campuses and in the executive suite of an organized labor, along with, of course, many members of the general public? I have no idea. That's it for this week's show. Look, I'm glad you're with us, but I hope you also join us on Money Talks Tweets, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, and mikesmoneytalks.ca. We get to add a lot of stuff during the week that are pertinent to the kind of issues I talked about actually at the top of the show, about things that relate directly to our personal finances, to our economy, and the prospects for Canada. I hope you do it. It's much appreciated. In the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful week. 